You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello, everybody. This is Jeff Cockrell from McGuire Woods, and we're here with another installment of our kind of ongoing series of Across the Table, where I interview uh, deal makers in a lot of different areas of healthcare and investing, where we talk about some of the drivers in this market, areas that are piquing investors' interest, a little bit about some of the deal terms, and we'll try to read the tea leaves as much as we can of what we think the future is going to hold. Today, I'm joined with Raj Katari from Cascade Partners. And Raj, maybe to to open us up, if you could uh, introduce yourself and Cascade Partners, and then we'll dive into some topics. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. As you said, I'm with Cascade Partners. We are a middle market investment bank, a little different than most because we have actually been investors. We've been operators and deal people. So we've been private equity investors in healthcare companies, including physician practices. We've served on the corporate development teams of PE-backed roll-ups and what have you. So we bring kind of a breadth of experience and insight when we're working organizations. And, you know, that's what we've enjoyed. We've helped actually build a lot of different companies over time. So I think that's where we bring quite a bit of difference to the table is the ability to see beyond the transaction and really drive down to implications. That's been important for a lot of the positions that we've worked with. Raj, that sounds great. And uh, you all have a sterling reputation in the market, and we're glad that uh, you're joining us here today. Maybe to start the discussion, it has been a really long run of consolidation of healthcare providers moving kind of subsector by subsector with none of them even ending, just adding more to the frothy fray. And right now, the market in kind of every area feels white hot. But in the area of physician consolidation, everyone always asks, is there an end in sight to this? Do you ever hit kind of a complete market where everything that is consolidatable has been consolidated. How would you describe the consolidation process in healthcare provider services? Well, I still think we're in the early innings of it as a whole, because as you described, it's moving from specialty to specialty. What started out in, you know, in dental and anesthesiology and emergency medicine and radiology has now spread to, you name the specialty, women's health, podiatry, ENT, ophthalmology, GI. It's just spreading across more and more specialties as I think folks understand and learn how the expertise and the learnings they've had in different specialties can translate. And, you know, the, the dental market has been undergoing this process for probably the longest and you know, most estimates put consolidation at less than 20 to 25%. But, you know, the market's changing. You know, even the AMA says, you know, less than 15% of all docs have a solo practice, and that's in their latest survey back in 18, and, and that's, you know, down from 18% in 2012. So kind of a, a six-year timeline, it dropped 3%. The economics of being a solo practitioner or a small group practitioner is making it harder and harder for them to survive. To me, a lot of the drivers of this consolidation in the first place are still present. You've got 
the kind of innate growth potential of uh, running a tighter ship and doing kind of de novo growth, like the traditional value drivers for uh, M&A activity. But you've got the other drivers in, in healthcare provider services that add to that the significant ability to do EBITDA multiple arbitrage, given the enormous disparity of the multiples of large platforms versus small platforms. So being able to arbitrage that is just super enticing and always has been. Plus, in healthcare in particular, the additional ability to uh, internalize ancillary services for a lot of these sectors where they were having to send off the lab to an outside lab or other ancillary services that they were not in in a position to be able to cleanly do themselves, the ability to uh, build a certain scale and then internalize all those ancillary services really changes the ability to make money by combining these practices. So I think those underlying drivers will continue to be present. There's no doubt. I mean, it is getting more expensive to run a practice. There is a shortage of physicians. Right, and running a physician practice is getting increasingly complex. Those are very significant drivers that are affecting the physicians. I'm sure you've heard it, Jeff, from many where they're like, we're working harder to generate less income. The relatively fixed cost business, the smart ones are figuring out if we create scale, then we have a chance. And some are doing it on their own, and that's part of the opportunity. And some are looking at saying, you know what, I just want to continue to do a good job of practicing medicine. You know, we joke all the time that you can be a good CEO or you can be a good clinician. They're both full-time jobs and you can't do both. You know, that's a cold dose of reality for folks that for the last 20 years could have a good administrator more or less run and make a good living. And you can't survive in the healthcare business world today and deliver high quality care and run like you ran 20 years ago. And those are driving physicians to explore, hey, how do I do this differently, more intelligently? As I said, there's more options today than ever. They can do it on their own if they want to invest the time and money and take the risk. And some are like, yes, let's do that. And others are like, you know what, let me go find a partner. You look at things like DePage Medical or Cincinnati Eye, you know, they went a long time building a very large organization before they ever went and found a private equity partner. They grew it very successfully on their own. The sectors where we're seeing a lot of growth continue to expand and morph, I think I mentioned a little earlier that it it doesn't even seem like some sectors drop out of the calculus. You just add new ones. What are some of the kind of current areas that you're seeing a lot of activity and we can kind of compare notes on that? I think the market is still very fragmented. So as we said earlier, you're going to continue to see sectors that have been successful continue to drive like ophthalmology and dermatology. But ENT is one of the newer segments of the market that we're seeing a lot of activity. Podiatry, right? And the GI space, GI has been going on for a little while, but still in the nascent stages are some of the segments of the market that we're seeing the most more recent activity, you know, that, that weren't the favorite areas four or five years ago. Yeah, GI is an interesting one. We have a, a long history of doing work with ASC businesses. And for the longest time, the ASC business was a little separate from the related practice, but that 
consolidation of practices has now really heavily infiltrated the sectors where ASCs are very much a part of it. So we do work for a number of GI practices where you've got a number of components beyond just kind of like the baseline consolidation growth strategy. There's also the ability to turn these acquisitions into acquisitions as well of related ASCs and picking up other sources of revenue. Plus, the GI practices in particular are very well suited for doing larger scale hospital joint ventures where you're partnering with the health system. And the dynamics and the scale that's achievable when you do that are very, very significant. And you can very quickly in a market hit very critical mass and have a different kind of position in that market, which kind of changes some of the dynamics. So that's been a very interesting one. And then a similar dynamic is also present in orthopedic, where in addition to doing hospital joint ventures, where you can quickly get scale through a hospital joint venture, they're well positioned to do some very interesting value-based kind of risk-based contracting with commercial payers, which I think that whole intersection is one of the more interesting parts of healthcare investing. But those have been some of that we've seen a ton of uh, interest and activity in. Now, you're absolutely um, right. Orthopedic is, a, is an area with a lot of increasing interest and in market activity. You know, value-based pricing is interesting because in some markets, that's really taken hold. In others, it, it's still really a, you know, a nascent idea. And, and watching that market shift will create you know, unique opportunities for practices whether independently owned or or private equity owned, as you look forward and as they continue to explore ways of generating incremental revenue and profitability, that continues to be the area where some practices are just struggling, struggling to figure out how do I get beyond my core PC into the areas that they can leverage their expertise to generate incremental profitability and revenue, which is what they need to reinvest in their practices. And some of uh, the chicken and egg of that is that to do value-based contracting, the table stakes of even considering it are a certain degree of scale to be able to effectively kind of diffuse that risk, whether that is, uh, like you said, in orthopedic or in uh, primary care, where if you can achieve a certain level of scale, then you can do uh, kind of value-based contracting with respect to Medicare Advantage in other areas, but uh, scale is the gating item on being able to even contemplate that. And then in addition, you mentioned that folks, that's caught on in some areas and not caught on in others. And I think there's a huge premium on being kind of disciplined operators to be able to do that kind of value-based contracting, being able to employ discipline across a, a, a larger business of scale is really, really necessary to be successful at value-based contracting because obviously risk-taking can work out well or uh, sometimes risk-taking doesn't work out well. And the operators that have kind of discipline and systems and analytics uh, supporting their businesses have, in my opinion, done a lot better than than those that are merely trying to enter the value-based contracting without some of those components. And I think, you know, that's, I don't know what you've seen Jeff, I've seen an interesting shift along the same lines on the overall sophistication of the practices. So those that have built some reasonable management and systems and analytics are getting much more attractive valuations, much more attractive, and much broader level of interest. I think many 
folks jumped into the segment maybe four or five, six years ago and said, oh, well, we can help build all that. And they've struggled and they've now said, you know what, if, it, if a practice comes with those capabilities from the beginning, we're willing to value it higher because the lift isn't as heavy. And that, I think, we've right. seen and as so a more significant shift in the last couple of years. Very true. And some of that is kind of size and scale. I talked to a number of kind of a little bit smaller practices that are wanting to contemplate a sale transaction, and they get frustrated by the notion that a little bit smaller is going to command a lower EBITDA multiple. But part of that is that an entity that has got some scale has already made some of the investment in accounting and compliance and the tools that you need to be able to implement centralized decision-making, and all those things are expensive. And if you've achieved a certain level of EBITDA after absorbing those expenses, then it's going to command a higher multiple because it's already built in, whereas some of the smaller ones, those are expenses that are going to have to be incurred by a buyer if they're looking at using it as a platform. So some of the, the EBITDA multiple differentiation is a function of comparing a mere practice with a true kind of multi-pronged self-governing business, which they're two little bit different things. And the selling physicians often get frustrated by that distinction, but it's a recurring one in the pricing. Right. And and I think that's true. And, you know, but I think even the smaller ones that have built the right management teams are able to attract a much more meaningful valuation sometimes even surpassing what some will get within scale if they get the right kind of leadership. And it's, it's been a tactic that we've been using with some of the groups that we're working, helping them bring in that stronger leadership so you kind of move from the traditional administrator to truly a CEO into those practices. It's been an interesting shift in perceived value from uh, potential partners. And, you know, I describe it to the physicians as it gives you maximum flexibility because you can either go down the private equity path or you've got the capabilities or the resources now to to kind of go at it on your own and continue to succeed. And I'm a big believer optionality is the best path. And there, there are a lot of investors, maybe a lot is overstating, but there are certainly very credible investors, private equity investors that will consider a more nuanced relationship with a practice like that and would consider, mm-hmm. say, a, a 50-50 deal. So rather than rolling into 20, 25, maybe 30% of the resulting entity, maybe you're rolling in at a 50-50 level, which can change both the power dynamics and the potential of not selling all of their business at the, the lower end of the, the growth trajectory. So that's something to consider as well, especially for the practices that you're describing where they have a more developed business that they're bringing to market. Changing a little bit to uh, deal terms, it's been a very much a seller's market for quite a bit. What are you seeing in the deal terms as far as kind of risk shifting and other uh, deal terms that'd be significant in the stuff that you're negotiating? Yeah, so I mean, you're right. It still remains very much a seller's market, but I think the the partners are getting smarter and being more thoughtful about how to lock the dots in post-closing. I'd say the most significant trend that we've seen is increasing handcuffs around the rollover equity and that, you know, initial, call it 
you know, four or five year engagement of the physicians post closing. We've seen from softer, hey, you just got to be there and good lever and bad lever to now hammers if you leave for almost any reason, as well as in a few cases, this concept of the clawback, which I think I'm not sure should sustain or is sustainable. Luckily, we haven't seen that too many, but I've heard about it more in the marketplace. We've fortunately been able to avoid that for the most part in the deals that we've we've been working on. But I know we see it more and more in term sheets and other factors, and I think it's something that folks have to be smart about because there's a lot of dynamics that are going to cause those changes. And we're also seeing an increasing effort to create alignment even on compensation so that the physicians and the private equity have greater alignment around uh, that, that annual compensation. That's challenging, right? Because they, yeah. they're subject to it, but they don't have a lot of control over those expenses. But, you know, obviously many of the private equity partners love that model because it, you know, creates shared risk, even though the docs don't really have much control over the expense side. On the kind of hooks to keep people around, we definitely see kind of forfeiture mechanisms on the rollover being a, a lever that the buyers can utilize. Those kind of clawback elements are tricky to navigate from a regulatory and from a tax perspective. They kind of sit in gray zones of both of those. I'm sympathetic to the, the buyers that when you're buying goodwill of this provider services business, if big clumps of them uh, decided to up and go, even if not to go to a competitor, to, but or if a number of them just decide to move to a different city that's not even covered by your non-compete, it can be a, a challenge to have the cash flow generation walk out the door. And from a buyer's perspective, that's unsettling, but also not something that happens very regularly. And to your point on the longer-term commitments, the buyers can kind of call the bluff a little bit on the seller's concern uh, as it relates to the non-compete that, hey, you're going to, you're the private equity fund, you're going to come in and you're going to fire me right away, even though that that's not very business-wise plausible for them to do. And one of the ways the private equity fund can kind of call the bluff on that is to say, we'll commit to a five-year kind of baseball-style uh, contract where we can't get rid of you other than for pretty narrow cause topics and you can get some alignment on that and give everybody more comfort uh, in an area where the reality is that neither the private equity fund nor the, the physicians in reality very often are peeling themselves away from each other. So uh, anything that can make them stickier makes everybody more comfortable. And your, your comment on the comp models is absolutely true. And we see a ton of interest in using those kind of income repair models or EBPC models yep. where the year-by-year -year compensation of the physicians is not only tied to their own personal production. And you picked on uh, the, the, the part that's sensitive to the doctors of if their compensation has a bottom line P&L component, then they can get stung by things that they don't have as much control over directly. But the flip side is, and how it's usually presented by the private equity folks, is that, that the upside of that can be true as well, that under a traditional model, you, you, you took a clip on your compensation in the scrape that created the EBITDA, and you, the only way for you to kind of get it back is uh, more work on your own back, maybe some uh, uh, sharing of ancillary services revenue, but very much the ability to recover that is based on just your own production, whereas 
in the EBPC models, if it works properly, they can recover some of that income by kind of expanding that practice or that location, depending on how the comp arrangement is set, but generally improve their individual compensation on something other than work by their own back. So those are compelling economically. And then another part of the alignment that I usually see the physicians reacting very favorably to is that those EDPC models of, uh, so earnings before partner comp structures, that are kind of bottom line P&L driven usually come with a greater degree of autonomy. And there's usually some version of a clinical governance board that has a pretty significant uh, decision-making authority on, on A, all of the clinical aspects of what's going on, as you might expect. But also, they usually will have some say in how that EBPC pool is divvied up amongst these positions. Those have continued to be super attractive and slowly picking up more and more of the market of, of transactions that I see. And you said it, the key is allocating the buckets properly because where we've seen the challenge is, you know, making investments for the greater good sometimes are hard to see when the practice spreads multiple states and multiple areas. And generally the doc says, you know, like, well, I was running fine beforehand. And you have to walk through and kind of say, okay, there's some investments that are going to be positive and some that are negative. And then those models also have a huge impact. And when in the platform cycle are you? We've gone to describing a lot of the J factor to practices that are early in the platform saying, look, at your expenses are going to go up before they're going to go down because they got to invest in all the infrastructure to scale and grow. And that takes a little bit of educating and understanding to get them uh, on board and excited. The interest in those kind of EBPC uh, income repair models, it's also interesting that it has been most acute, the interest meaning, in the form of larger fund investors. And one of the reasons I think that it has been so attractive to larger fund investors is they've experienced more of the impact on alignment of a series of sponsor-to-sponsor transactions, of meaning that if you're relying on rollover equity as being a significant aspect of kind of physician alignment and, and making them sticky and connected to this business, every time that the business transacts at the sponsor level, some of that rollover, uh, probably not all of it, but some of that rollover is being sold in that transaction as another second or third bite at the apple, which is how it's designed to work. But every one of those transactions is kind of slowly peeling away that uh, level of connectivity. And these EBPC models, since they're compensation structures as opposed to kind of equity structures, they're durable and kind of last through the sponsor-to-sponsor transactions. So I think that's another reason why, especially on the larger fund investors, that model has been so popular. Don't disagree at all. I think you're you're right on the money and what uh, what drives that and what makes that happen. Well, maybe uh, putting on our crystal ball here before we wrap up. What do you see through the end of this year, and what's your best guess of what to expect in 2022? Is this all roses for as long as we can see? Are there uh, clouds on the horizon? What's your best prognostication? 
Well, unfortunately, it's a tough year to be a prognosticator because a lot of it depends on you tell me what happens to taxes, and I'll give you a sense of what I think is going to happen. The reality is there's lots of anxiety and lots of concern over what's going to happen to capital gains tax. I think most people believe it's going to go up. It's just not going to go up as significantly as being hiked in the in the talking heads today. And so that has people actively looking at, hey, do we go now? Do we wait? So I think it's going to be an extraordinarily busy year for us in the deal business. This is a tax change year, which is those are crazy years with everybody rushing to make the end of the year. But there's so much activity, not just in the physician space or in the healthcare sector as a whole, but across the market. And so resources are actually really constrained, getting time with lawyers, investment bankers, quality of earnings, diligence experts. If you're not out in the process today, in the next couple of weeks, it's going to be really hard to make a year-end timeline. And so I think you're going to have that. I think you're going to go, if we have a tax law change, we'll have a short lull so everybody recalibrates. And then folks are going to go, well, this is the new norm. And then, you know, we're going to continue to pick up as long as the economy holds and as long as we don't have inflation pressure. Getting rid of taxes, inflationary pressure is what has me concerned about impacting the economy, which will then impact the MA market. If you get rid of Inflation and you get rid of, or inflationary risk and you get rid of the impact of tax law change, I think you're going to see uh, this continue to be very attractive and strong market. Any increase in interest rates, whether driven specifically by inflation or the response to inflation or otherwise, would in immediately start to pinch on pricing? I'm not sure how much of that pinch would, how much of an impact that pinch would have. It might make things a little bit less frothy, but all of these really frothy transactions where the, just the leverage in the hands of the seller is so uh, profound. I can't tell you how many deals I've worked on where the diligence timelines are, there's just not enough to do what you need to do before writing really, really big checks. And it forces everybody into a scramble. and. A little bit less frothiness, I think, might help the market be more prudent and sustain the, the growth. And the last thing that any of this market needs is for upstream buyers to perform badly. The minute they are less enthused about buying uh, from the sponsor that's a little bit smaller than them, that'll really pinch the market. So I always try to keep an eye on how the upstream buyers are performing. And this market where the prices are sky high, 14, 15, 16 times, coupled with razor thin diligence timelines, coupled with zero indemnity deal terms, all of those things make me nervous for the larger big box buyers, because I think that this whole industry needs them to do well. And the current pressures are, are hard on them. So that may be overstating the significance of it, but I, I would welcome a little bit less frothiness, but nobody wants a big wet blanket on the economy or on the M&A world. It'll be hard to hit the Goldilocks uh, line, but to your point, it certainly looks like it's going to be frothy to the end of the year. And if there's a tax change, even if it's just borrowing from Q1, Q2, and jamming it all into this Q4, <laughs> that'll be Super unpleasant, uh, and I hope that that doesn't happen. 
You know, I'm an investment banker, so I like a little frothiness. It's never the worst thing in the world when you're representing sellers. It's really a pain when you're representing buyers. So a good, balanced, healthy, healthy deal market is, I think, good for uh, good for everybody. It keeps everybody on their toes and and honest and realistic. But I, I think the one of the exciting things I think is happening in the marketplace is the number of creative solutions and optionality that both private equity investors, but also more importantly, shareholders, whether physician shareholders or others, have creates a creates a pretty exciting market out for out there for them to achieve kind of their vision and and goals and and dreams. Raj, if you could tell everyone what what is the kind of the sweet spot of the the type of sellers that should be talking to you, kind of size, sector, uh, and then also how can people reach you? Sure. Well, and so we work with a lot of different organizations, but our bread and butter tends to be those that are not necessarily doing a transaction, but are even beginning to consider it and, and want to get smarter and learn about what it means and what it takes. It doesn't have to be a transaction for us to get involved, but when we're working within healthcare, one of the sectors that we do a tremendous amount of work, we've worked across the board from pharma services to medical device manufacturers, the physician practices and others and insurers. We bring that experience from our role on boards of payers, hospital systems, and owner of physician practices ourselves through our own private equity and venture fund activities in the past. And you know, typically we're working with practices that have four to five locations at a minimum, seven to ten physicians on up, and that are exploring, you know, what might exist out there for them and their specialty and the unique needs that they have. And you can you can obviously reach us at our website, www.cascade-partners.com or my email which is Raj K R A J K at Cascade hyphen partners.com. Well, thanks a lot, Raj. You know, uh, we have tons of respect for you and your colleagues. Really want to thank you for spending a few minutes uh, with us. It's been super interesting and we'll have to do this again sometime. I appreciate Jeff. We really enjoyed it as well. And it's great working with the team and, you know, being able to have an impact. I know, you know, you guys are well-respected, and we've enjoyed working on the deals that we've worked on together, and know we've had a great impact on the shareholders, and, and that's the key. We'll call that a wrap. Raj, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. It's been super interesting, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.